Good morning. Today we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. I was listening to the podcast On Being a few years ago. Uh, The host, Krista Tippett, was talking to a couple of prominent Buddhist practitioners, and they were talking about loving your enemies. And Krista Tippett asked them, she said, hey, tell me, what do you mean by that? And immediately one of them said, oh, Jesus is the one who talked about that. You know, there are many moral, ethical, and spiritual teachers throughout history who have talked about many of the same things that Jesus talked about. But nobody apart from Jesus in the history of the world ever said, love your enemies. But it's not just that Jesus's words here are unique. I'll be honest with you that uh, I've struggled this week as I have studied this passage and thought about it and how to communicate it to you. I've, I've felt the weight of this this week because I've asked the question, how am I supposed to talk to people? Who am I to talk to people who have been oppressed, hurt, abused, hated, violated, and crushed and tell you to love the people who did that to you? I'll be honest with you, um, my only comfort and my only strength is that it's not me telling it to you. I'm a servant of Jesus, and my job is not to tell you what I think. What I think is irrelevant. My only task is to tell you what Jesus said and to try to be as faithful as I possibly can to him, to his words, and to you as I communicate those words to you. Because not only is there nothing more unique than what Jesus says here, there's nothing more painful, difficult, and honestly offensive than what Jesus says here. So I come to this with trembling this morning because talking about this means talking about the parts of our lives that are so painful that we almost never go there. Jesus is inviting us to go there this morning. But I also want to invite you to come to this with hope and, and even wonder. I heard wonder defined recently as permission to believe in what we have yet to see. I love that definition. Wonder is permission to believe in what we have yet to see. One of the main reasons that we so rarely will look at the most painful, evil parts of our lives is because when we do, it's impossible to see anything good, redemptive, or hopeful that could possibly come out of it. But what if Jesus wants to take you by the hand straight into the heart of that abyss of pain and lead you through it into a world of love? 
Because ultimately, that's what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus says at the end of this passage, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's talking about perfect love. What does that mean? Let's go with Jesus as he shows us three things about this perfect love. We're gonna see the meaning of love, the challenge of love, and the power of love, okay? The meaning, the challenge, and the power of love, okay? So first, Jesus shows us the meaning of love. One of the first things we need to understand is what does Jesus mean when he talks about love? Because when we hear the word love in Western culture, uh, a lot of the times for us, we have a tendency to define love in terms of freedom and tolerance, In other words, we say that loving people means giving them the freedom to live however they want without passing judgment, without constraining them. And you know, there's actually a lot to be said for that definition of love. In fact, um, freeing people from rigid social and cultural expectations and honoring individual freedom, that's actually one of Jesus's greatest gifts to the world. For instance, Luc Ferry is a... uh, a French philosopher who wrote a best-selling book called A Brief History of Thought. Now, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in Christianity, but he's very honest about Christianity's impact in the world. Um, So here's what he says at one point in the book. By resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect upon the history of ideas. To give one example, it is quite clear that in this Christian reevaluation of the human person, of the individual as such, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. Jesus advocated love and, and especially individual freedom, but here's the problem. It's very clear, if we think about it, that there are certain ways that people should not just be free to live however they want, right? I mean, people do evil. People do horrible things. How do we say it? Everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. Do you see the problem? If if love only means giving people freedom to live however they want, then by that definition, it's impossible to love people who do evil and harm others. But Jesus transforms our idea of love. So last week, if you were with us, we saw that Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Jesus very clearly has no problem naming evil. Jesus has no problem saying, look, evil exists. We can see it. We can call it out. And yet for Jesus, telling the truth about evil and loving people are never mutually exclusive. So for instance, if you read Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is calling out evil in the religious leaders. And it, you know, they were burdening people with rules and regulations that they never kept themselves. They were calling people sinners for doing things that God never calls sin. So in Matthew 23, Jesus is naming their evil, but, but he, for Jesus, telling the truth about evil and loving people were never mutually exclusive. So even while he's saying incredibly harsh things about these religious leaders, Jesus never stopped loving them. He did say, woe to you. But there's a big difference between pronouncing a woe and pronouncing a curse. Jesus never cursed them. He said, woe to you. A curse is when you say, I condemn you. 
A curse is when you cancel someone, as, as we would say it today. Jesus doesn't do that. He pronounces a woe on them. Pronouncing a woe is when you say, be careful, I'm afraid for you because the path you're on will not only destroy you, it's gonna destroy others. Jesus never pronounced a curse on them. He pronounced a woe on them. Jesus was able to tell the truth about evil and still be heartbroken because he loved people so much that he was um, heartbroken over the idea that they and others would be destroyed by their evil. So what does love mean according to Jesus? Well, he shows us in verse 45. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what does it mean to pray for someone? Well, praying for people means that you're carrying them into the presence of God and asking God to bring forgiveness, healing, redemption, and renewal to their lives. Praying for people means that you're asking God to intervene in their lives for good. So that's what Jesus means when he says to love people, to pray for people like this. But here's the thing. You, the only way you can do that is if you're honest about their evil. The only way you can pray for people like this is if you tell the truth about their evil. Esau Macaulay is a contemporary theologian, and he wrote a wonderful book recently called Reading While Black. Um, in this book, at one point, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount and especially its implications for us um, in our political and social engagement as Christians. You know, as Christians, we should be working for peace in the world. We should be working for love in the world. But here's what Esau Macaulay points out about what Jesus says about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, peacemaking cannot be separated from truth-telling. The church's witness does not involve simply denouncing the excesses of both sides and making moral equivalencies. It involves calling injustice by its name. If the church is going to be on the side of peace in the United States, then there has to be an honest accounting of what this country has done and continues to do to black and brown people. So when it comes to the Christian's work in this world, including our political and social responsibilities, according to Jesus, that um, is never divorced from telling the truth about evil and injustice. It depends on telling the truth about evil and injustice. But for Jesus, telling the truth about evil and loving people were never mutually exclusive. Love means cultivating a deep longing in your heart to see people not condemned, not cursed, not canceled, but healed from evil and renewed in the image of God. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen the meaning of love. But secondly, Jesus shows us the challenge of love because it's one thing to talk about loving evil people in general, but it's completely different to talk about real people who have done real evil to you. Especially, you know, it, I think it's very easy for us a lot of times to um, hear these words of Jesus and, and to forget that he was talking to people who were brutally oppressed when Jesus said, love your enemies, that would have been shocking to his original audience because Israel at that time was living under Roman occupation. They were oppressed, marginalized, mistreated. They were abused. And yet here's Jesus, who's one of them, by the way, and he has the audacity to come to these oppressed people and tell them, you must love your oppressors. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to them? 
I mean, do you think that Jesus was just one of these people who's really socially unaware? You know, every family has someone like this, crazy Uncle Fred. They're always showing up to family gatherings, saying the wrong thing, making people really uncomfortable so that you just have to grab hold of them and say, sorry, folks, come on, Uncle Fred, let's just sit you down over here. Do you think that Jesus was just like the ancient Middle Eastern version of crazy Uncle Fred? No. Friends, if we want to take Jesus seriously, then we have to take his words seriously. If you're exploring faith, or, or maybe you're skeptical about Christianity, but also a little curious, then the main question you have to wrestle with is, who is Jesus? A lot of times in, in our culture, uh, the default definition of Jesus is, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Okay, great. But what were these wonderful, great moral teachings of Jesus that we always point to? Well, things like this, things like caring for the poor or visiting the sick or welcoming the stranger, these are the great moral teachings of Jesus. But almost no one ever quotes Jesus uh, doing a great moral teaching of loving your enemies. We do not consider that a great moral teaching. Why? Because it hurts because it's difficult, because it's offensive, because it goes against everything in our hearts. And yet Jesus is saying, we desperately need to hear this. Jesus is saying, we desperately need to embrace this. Why? Well, look at Jesus's own people. You know, I just mentioned a bit ago that, that Israel at that time was living under Roman occupation. They were oppressed, marginalized, and abused. And yet, Jews had a hope for something that they called the kingdom of God. And we talk about that quite a bit here. What is the kingdom of God? The main storyline of the whole Bible is that one day God is going to send a king into this world who's going to defeat evil and who's going to renew and restore this physical, material world to be a place of wholeness, beauty, and perfection. That's the kingdom of God. The Jews were waiting for this. They were longing for it. So when Jesus came along and started talking about the kingdom of God, they were excited the problem is that this vision of the kingdom of God had gotten shrunk down to a nationalistic, tribal, political vision in which God saves Israel only but destroys everyone else, especially the Roman oppressors. And, and they thought Jesus was the guy who was gonna do this. Friends, I don't think I have to work very hard this week, especially after what happened in our capital a few weeks ago, to convince you of the dangers of nationalism the dangers of tribal thinking, of us versus them thinking. It's like a, a cancer in our society. Why would Jesus tell them and us to love our enemies? Because if we don't, then the evil that's done to us has the power to infect us and to make us carriers. It's worse than a pandemic. It's like a zombie apocalypse. Once you're bitten, you become a zombie. It poisons our hearts and it poisons the world. I want to tell you a story, um, but I want to warn you that this is a disturbing story about an assault. Um, it's PG-13 at least, so if you have little kids with you, maybe turn down the volume for the next 90 seconds or take them out of the room and then come back and listen to this later. But I think it's important to tell stories like this, real stories about real people, because not only is it important to name real evil, it's important to see what's really at stake. This story is from the genocide that took place in Bosnia 
back in the 1990s. And I'm just going to read this woman's words. Here's what she says. I am a Muslim, and I am 35 years old. I taught the children in my town to love. I did. I'm a teacher of literature. I was born in my town, and I almost died there. For the last two months, there was nothing in me, no pain, no bitterness, only hatred. My student, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. As the bearded hooligans standing around laughed, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. My former colleague, a teacher of physics, was yelling like mad, hitting me wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul, it hurts. I taught them to love, and all the while, they were making preparations to destroy everything that is not of the Orthodox faith. The Serbs taught me to hate. So to my second son, who was just born, I gave the name Jihad, so that he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. Jihad, war, this is the only way. There was real evil that was done to her. There was real injustice that was done to her, and she names it. And yet there was also a real tragedy that happened in her, a turning away from love toward hatred. Friends, this can happen to any of us. The tragic danger of evil is that it carries within itself the the power, the capacity to infect us and spread itself more deeply into this world. And I understand it would be tempting maybe for some of us to hear this story and think, well, see, these were religious people who did this. The answer is get rid of religion, but, but the problem is not just religion, is it? I mean, the 20th century proved that. It's, it's a human problem. Jesus has the antidote. Jesus has the remedy. Love your enemies, he says. The challenge of love is that our hearts are hardwired to hate our enemies so that loving them, praying for them, it goes against everything in our hearts. It feels like a death, and that leads to our last point. We've just seen the meaning of love, that love doesn't just mean freeing people to live however they want. It means cultivating a longing to see them healed of evil and renewed in the image of God. And secondly, Jesus just showed us the challenge of love that when evil is done to us, um, it's almost impossible for us to love the people who did that to us. And that leads to our last point. Jesus shows us the power of love. Because here's the thing. As we just saw, Christians have the same capacity for evil as anyone else. Christians have done horrible things in this world. And yet, there have been moments, actual times in history, when people have lived the way Jesus taught them to live, when people have loved their enemies. For instance, in the third century AD, there was a series of devastating plagues in the ancient world that death rates were off the charts. Everyone was fleeing the cities. In fact, some people would throw their own family members into the road before they had died because they were so afraid of being infected by them. Everyone was fleeing the cities except the Christians. So here's how one eyewitness described it. He said, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Now, 
here's the amazing thing about this. Um, at that time in history, Christians were still persecuted. Um, they were, it was an outlawed religion. So why in the world would these Christians risk their lives to stay in, in, in a city and care for dying people, people who possibly would have been only too happy to see those Christians die themselves? Why would they do that? In other words, how were these Christians able to, when evil was done to them, not become infected by the evil, but actually practice love towards the people who did evil? You know, Rodney Stark is a sociologist and a historian. He's written a number of books about religion, but he's coming at it from a sociological perspective, kind of a scientific perspective. One of his most famous books is called The Rise of Christianity. In that book, Rodney Stark, he looks at these ancient plagues in, in the world and he asks the question, why would these Christians do this? Why, when everyone else was fleeing the cities, why would they stay and care for sick, dying people like this? And remember, I just said, he's a sociologist. He's a, an historian. He's coming at this from a scientific perspective. And yet he basically says the reason they did this was theological. He points out that in the ancient world, in pagan religion of the time, there was nothing new about the idea that if you live a good life, the gods will bless you, the gods will favor you. But in pagan religion like that, um, your relationship with these gods was sycophantic and um, transactional. That meant that the gods were impersonal deities. They didn't have any emotions. They certainly didn't care about these piddly little human beings. Rodney Stark points out that the truly revolutionary thing about the gospel was that for the first time in history, you had a God who told people to love others sacrificially across social barriers, across tribal divisions, across ethnic divisions, um, even today across political lines, to love people sacrificially. And here's the important part, because they had a God who had already loved them sacrificially. When I recounted this eyewitness account of the plagues in um, the ancient world a moment ago, I left out the last little bit. Here's what it says at the very end. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. See, it's not just a sacrificial love, it's a substitutionary love. So for instance, when Jesus talks about praying for your enemies, he says, pray for those who persecute you. Remember, we just saw that praying for people like this means that you're carrying them into the presence of God and asking God, beseeching God to heal them from evil and to renew them in his image. In other words, the, the only way we can pray like this is this. When, when it says for here in this word, pray for, that's a substitutionary word. It's a word that means on behalf of or in the place of. In other words, the only way we can pray for people like this, the only way we can pray for people who have done evil to us is if instead of taking revenge on them, we bear the cost for the evil that they did to us. And then if we do that, Jesus says, do that. And notice how he says this, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Jesus says, Love people sacrificially. Love your enemies sacrificially that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that our sacrificial love for our enemies is the result of a family resemblance to God. Now, obviously, that begs the question, where do we see God sacrificially loving his enemies? 
Where do we see God bearing the cost of people who did evil to him? When he was on the cross, Jesus Christ prayed for his persecutors. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, Jesus Christ is not just a great moral teacher. He is the son of God. He is the God of the universe. He is the great king who came to earth to defeat evil and renew this world. But when he was on the cross, Jesus Christ not only bore the evil that was done to him, he prayed for the people who did it to him. And understand, it wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the religious leaders. It was you and it was me. Because every time we hate other people, we're not just hating them, we're hating the God who created them in his image. Every time we smear them with our words or crush them in our hearts or take pleasure in their pain, we're not just doing it to them, we're doing it to Jesus. And yet on the cross, instead of hating us back, instead of cursing us, condemning us, crushing us and counseling us, Jesus died for us. When Jesus says, love your enemies, the only way we can possibly do that is by seeing that Jesus has already done all of that already for us. Friends, when evil is done to you that you don't deserve, it has the power to twist you into its image. There is only one thing in the world more powerful than that, that when there is a love done for you that you don't deserve, it has even more power to transform you into its image. Do you know that Jesus did that for you? If we push that away, if we reject that, then the bitterness in our hearts only gets worse so that every evil done to us, every injustice done to us, it twists us in its image. The only way that changes is this. We need to see the love done for us to overcome the evil done to us. We need to see the love done for us in order to overcome the evil done to us. That's the only way the bitterness in our hearts gets healed. So for instance, in Exodus chapter 15, right after they got freed from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites came to a body of water that was poison. It was poisonous, bitter water. They couldn't drink it. And so they started grumbling and complaining. The water was bitter. Their hearts were bitter. But God showed Moses a tree that had been cut down. And when Moses threw the tree into the water, the water became sweet. Friends, the only way that the bitter water of our hearts can become sweet is if we take the tree of the cross and throw it in there. Now, I understand as we talk about this, as we close out this morning, the idea of loving our enemies, the idea of loving people who've done evil to us, it's hard, it's, it's bitter, it feels like death to us. How do you do that? Maybe one small step in that direction for you this week as you think about the people who've done evil to you. And I'm guessing as I say that, there are names, there are people, there are stories, there are things that have happened to you and you're thinking about them right now. But one small step in that direction is just to pray for them this week and then again next week and then again the week after that. Friends, we need to see the love done for us in order to, overcome the evil done to us. The more that happens, the more we become vessels of God's love in a world that is poisoned by evil. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who wants to um, generate us into your family resemblance. In other words, you are a God who loves his enemies sacrificially. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us not to push away or reject the love of Jesus for us on the cross, but to embrace 
the love of a God who loved his enemies sacrificially on the cross. That's us, Father. So we confess to you this morning that, that we have hated others, that we have um, not loved others, Lord, but that in so doing, we have hated and not loved you. Father, forgive us this morning and help us to embrace the love of Jesus for us on the cross that we may become vessels of your love to the world around us. Father, we need your help to do this because it's hard. It feels so painful. It feels like death. Lord, I pray that you would make the death of Jesus on the tree of the cross more powerful, more sweet, that it would change the bitter waters of our hearts and transform us more and more into lovers in this world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.